I'm sure this morning, if you and I had the time to go all over this room, there would be many of you that would be prepared to say how good God has been in your life this week. How his faithfulness overwhelmed you at some point in a decision you've made this month. How last year, as you look back, look back, there was something that the good, good father took care of for you. And the only way you can explain it is because, oh, that's the only way you could explain it, because there's no other way to explain what he does. You know, last week in, our, in, in the message from the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about the fact that there are things that you can go through and look at God's Word that are absolutely unexplained scientifically. And I'm here to remind you that there are things that happen in our living that are only possible and unexplained scientifically, but only possible because the God of the universe reached out and took care of us. Amen? Chris, I'm getting just a little bit of a ring up here, so I don't know if y'all are getting that out there. Don't want that to be distracting this morning. We are on a journey through the book of Matthew. And one of, one of those stops along the way in the book of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus spent a lot of he spent a certain amount of time with those folks in front of him on the Sermon on the Mount. But what we've chosen to do is see if we, how long we can take to walk through the Sermon on the Mount. So <laughs> you're thinking, my goodness, can't we just do a chapter at a time? There's just so much in there that we have to do it section by section. So as we've been marching through and journeying through the book of Matthew, we find ourselves today in chapter 5. And we're going, to, we're going to begin in verse 27. So you might want to go ahead and turn there. Chapter 5, verse 27. And we're picking up where we left off last week. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about what Jesus had to say about murder. And the amazing thing is that murder is, about, is not is always just about the act, but it's all, also about the implication or the thought so that someone, according to Jesus, with their heart so angry, actually has committed murder in their thoughts. And for that reason, you and I are guilty of murder. That's a heavy thing to take. And imagine... If since the tablets came down from Mount Sinai, when Moses brought them down, if you were a Hebrew and you had always understood that murder was about the act of murder, and now Jesus is saying it is that, but it's much more. It's actually how we think regarding murder. And that's a scary thing. In verse 21, 22, by the way, just to look back, he expanded our whole understanding. He challenged us. Murder is more than the act. It's also about the heart. God is as concerned with anger as he is about shedding of blood. Because in our heart, we can be guilty of that. So that's, what, that's the last words from Jesus just a few moments before as we get to this place that we are this morning. And part one of this message is Matthew starting chapter 5, starting in verse 27. And so we look at the second example of Christian conduct that Jesus brings up in the Sermon on the Mount, that being about marriage. Christian marriage 
and how it can be perverted by lust. So let's begin our study right there. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here again, Jesus is using and trying to expand our understanding by saying it's not just about the act, it's about the condition of our heart. And according to Jesus then, lust is to adultery as anger is to murder. It's not just the act, it's also about the thoughts. Now we can look around all around us today and see and look at the standards or the standard that is at odds with accepted behavior and accepted standards in our day. Lots of examples around that. In fact, several years ago, someone wrote that never before in the history of the Western world since the death of Greek and Roman paganism has faithfulness and fidelity in marriage been so threatened from within and without. So we've gone back to the days of Rome. We can all get excited about that, can't we? Sexual passions are completely encouraged and praised in the world we live in. And that was one of the great attributes that Rome was carrying. Something to be proud of. You and I are affected by things in our culture that come at us, whether we like it or not. Let's talk about the media for just a moment. The media uses sex appeal to promote the clothes we wear, the cars we drive, the vacations we take, particularly those without kids, television shows, movies we watch, even the toothpaste we use because we want to get that sex appeal that we need. Have you priced toothpaste lately? Adults today, as well as our students, some of you here in this room, our children, our grandchildren, are growing up in a world where all of this is the norm. A recent example that we can look to of how far we seem to be bending is something called Fifty Shades of Grey. I will not ask you to raise your hand if you own a copy of that. The book has become a movie, of course. And if you go online, you find this kind of description. It's an erotic romance that traces the relationship between a college graduate and a young business tycoon. It, and it goes on to say that it is notable for its explicitly erotic scenes featuring elements of a variety of sexual practices topping bestseller lists around the world. By June of 2015, it had sold over 125 million copies worldwide. 125 million copies. It's been translated into 52 languages. It set a record in the United Kingdom as the fastest-selling paperback of all time. And just when you thought maybe that had passed by, in the month of February comes the sequel, Fifty Shades Darker. And even though this movie was slammed by the critics, we just keep producing stuff, don't we? Fifty Shades Darker. Our exposure to sexual information in the media and in every form of advertising just continues to grow. Sometimes it seems exponentially. So let's take a moment and look at the screen 
and consider what this video shares with us. Now, if you want to make sure you got some of those figures just for your own edification or someone you might even want to have a conversation about, if you'll go to the inside of your bulletin where the sermon notes are, let me just run through those again with you because some of this is pretty startling stuff. 93% of males and 62% of females are exposed to pornography before the age of 18. 25% of all web searches are for erotic content, 25%. 47% of people watch between 30 minutes to three hours a day. 30 minutes to three hours of porn a day. One out of three viewers are women. 50% of Christian men are addicted to pornography. 20% of Christian women are addicted to to pornography. Pornography use is a significant factor in one out of two divorces. 45% of Christians consider pornography a major problem in their home. So we can't say it's just out there. It comes in where we are too. It affects us all. The media is coming at us, and we have to be careful and wise about how we view and look and consider the things that are out there in front of us. A second thing is the philosophy of the day. And I'm going to sound like, or at the risk of sounding out of touch with popular culture, the Bible says, and even some scientists say, that marriage and the accepted norms of the structures that have, been, that have made us who we are are at risk in so many ways. So just because it's accepted, whatever that is, doesn't make it right. Our views about sex are not as God intended. 
They're supposed to be within the boundaries of marriage. That's pretty clear. The Christian ethic of faithfulness and monogamous marriage is continually threatened. The philosophy of our day is all about the goal of pleasure with the pursuit of more and more stuff. So we want to feel good all the time. And we also get it through cars and through houses, through clothes, and sometimes it seems more partners. That makes us happier. So we've got media that challenges us and affects us. We've got the philosophy of the day, and then we've got something called the new morality. And the new morality developed through so-called Christian thinking back in the 60s and the 70s. So if you're a little younger, you say, well, that, where's the new come in? This is not new if it was back in the 60s or the 70s, but it has affected us. And I'll show you how in just a moment. But just so you'll know, some of the people that espoused these kinds of ideas were Anglican Bishop Robinson of England, Episcopal theologian Joseph Fletcher, and he talked about situational ethics. American theologian Harvey Cox of the Harvard Divinity School, and a guy named, an American Episcopal bishop named James Pike, who's now deceased, also taught this kind of thinking. And what is that? this kind of thinking, Bill, you're talking about. It threatens us in two different ways. Number, the first one is that the proper action in any given set of circumstances is determined by the situation itself and not by any predetermined norms or accepted standards, not even biblical. So in other words, no matter what this book teaches me, when I get into a situation that I think is difficult or I need to reevaluate, no matter what this book teaches me, then I need to deal with that situation based on what's happening, regardless of what this book teaches me. Parents, when you teach your children something that you believe is a principle for living, I think you're probably teaching them that with the idea that this holds true now and in the future. But what we're being taught is that regardless of the principle, when you run up against the situation, that can be put aside. The principle can be put aside. And you and I need to respond to the situation because it may not be comfortable to use the principle. A second thing that these fellows were teaching and that has permeated our culture is that the only absolute demand in the Christian scheme of things is love. Anything is right that does not hurt the other person, and that is determined, again, by the situation. So as long as there's love going on, as long as you love the person, it's okay to stretch or redo whatever the principle is, even as a Christian. So regardless of what the Bible teaches, we have to change with the situation. So if you have never heard of, quote, the new morality, I think if you look around, you realize that the new morality is here and that you and I are affected by it. We're affected by it at work, at school, in the culture around us. Everywhere we look, you and I are told this is difficult, so just set aside what you believe and go with what works for the moment. Now, the biggest problem with that thinking is that it's assuming that sinful man is going to make the right decision. 
It's assuming I'm going to make the right decision in every situation. And I can tell you from experience that I am not going to make the right decision in every situation. In fact, the list of wrong decisions sometimes outweighs the list of right decisions. Do you ever feel like that? Are you going to always do the right thing? Because this teaching tells us that whatever you decide, as long as you love somebody about it, that it's okay. But the evidence is that you and I won't necessarily make the right decision, isn't it? A prophet named Jeremiah wrote in 17.9 of his book, The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So I'm generally going to go with the one that hurts me the least. That's my first inclination as sinful man. And, le- and I know I don't need to remind you of this, but even after accepting Christ, I still have to work through life because I'm a sinful man. I didn't get in a bubble. Life still happens, doesn't it? You're not living in a bubble as a Christian, even though the world might tell you you are acting like you live in a bubble. We know better. We know that the possibilities about sin and poor decisions are there all the time, whether we're believers or not. So is there a cure? Is there a cure? What do we do? Well, we don't, and we're talking, let's back up, back into this, mar- this whole thing about marriage. Remember, all of this is, is in that whole arena this morning. We don't go live in a monastery, and we don't retreat into celibacy because God invented marriage and sexual relationships in the marriage. And we don't give in to this pressure of if it feels good, do it, because that's what situational ethics tells us. If it feels okay, then it must be right, because that's not the way, that's not the way to operate. And we have to push back by living and teaching what Christ taught us as the true way of happiness. We recognize that if you and I are going to live as God's people in the world, there are times that maybe the best thing to do with temptation is just to run from it. In fact, we're on good ground with that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul said, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. So it's, on, it's in our own best interest to follow God's plan. To the young preacher Timothy, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. And there's some biblical examples of that. There was a guy named Joseph in the Old Testament, and he found himself in charge of a guy named Potiphar's estate. He ran the house. He ran the purchasing. He ran the servants. He was in charge. Well, it seems Potiphar's wife had a wandering eye. And Potiphar's wife came after him. And Joseph ran. And Joseph wound up rewarded in the end because he was faithful to what he believed God would have him do. In contrast to Joseph is another guy named David, King David. And when he saw Bathsheba, instead of running, he invited Bathsheba to the palace. And his choices almost split the kingdom. 
His choices almost caused wars, and his choices caused so many undesirable things to happen because David did not allow the principles he knew to run his life, the things of God to take care of his life. He gave in to the moment. We will be tempted, but rather than give in, the Bible says leave, move away from it. And while there will certainly... While that will certainly help in the short term, though, it's not the solution. You can't just keep running. But in the moment, get away from it while you put together a plan on how to deal with it. The solution is finding victory. It's to connect with the purposes of God. Christian marriage is marriage as God intended. And the answer that works is when a man and a woman are united by God and enjoy the privileges of sex within the relationship rather than outside the relationship. And while this aspect of marriage is only part of marriage, granted, it's not just that part. It's not just that about marriage. There's much more to it. But it is a critical way to make sure you have God's plan in your life and to follow his will. And I think we're on pretty good ground this morning that God's word backs all of that up. Now, you may be thinking, well, you know, I've made some mistakes. I've not quite kept this in perspective. I've done some things that I don't think God would be happy about. Maybe it's too late for me. Well, the other part of God's word that comes through loud and clear is it's never too late. You can always fix it. You can always find forgiveness and grace because that's the God we serve. A forgiving, grace-giving God who loves us. And if you surrender to him in whatever area you're challenged by or find yourself not knowing what to do, if you will give that back to him, you can receive forgiveness. As we move on into verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off (laughs) and throw it away. (laughs) Because, you know, it's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, you might find that a little disturbing. Seriously? Cut it off? Gouge it out? That sounds pretty rough, doesn't it? Seems a bit drastic, Bill. And what's really interesting is some of you, I know some of you, you're, you're smart people. You're analytical. And you're already thinking, well, even if I'm blind, I can still have lust. Or even if I only have one eye, I can still sin with the other eye, right? Well, that's because Jesus isn't, doesn't, and, you know, I believe the Bible is completely true. But this is not one of those spots where he wants you to actually rip your eye loose. What he's saying is he's trying, what he's doing is painting a word picture for you and me. And the word picture is to make a point. And that point is, if you're a bent on allowing sin in your life, sin has the power to destroy your life. It has the power to destroy your relationship. And it would be better to suffer the pain of removal and follow God than to continue to make a lifestyle choice that keeps you in a very bad place. So you see, he's not just talking about marriage. He's talking about that implication is for lots of things in our lives. But specifically, we are still talking about marriage this morning. It's better to rid 
yourself of the sin that leads down a path of destruction. And if you yield to Christ and his standards, then you get to take that part of you that's become that new creation and it affects the other things in your life and therefore all things really do become new. Second part of our message this morning is that marriage is for life. I told Chad I really appreciated him being gone so that I would have a chance to dig around in this scripture because I don't know a bigger minefield. If I'm out in the world and I say abortion or immigration, the room divides. If I'm with a group of Christians, those words affect us too, but man, just say the word divorce. Because there's a lot of stuff that goes with that. And people start taking sides. So let's don't take any sides yet, okay? Give peace a chance. Give, uh, give me just a moment to dig around in this. Because this is a very complicated issue. And for you, it's pretty much impossible to live in this world and not be affected by it in some way. In fact, I doubt that there's a single person in our room here this morning, that is not affected. Think about it. Whether it affects you, whether it's about you or about your child or another family member or a neighbor or a relative or a fellow worker or a schoolmate or a friend, just about everyone we know has been touched by this whole thing of divorce. Everybody. Because it is a huge issue for us, isn't it? And then you have the idea that God's Word says marriage is for life. That's really the teaching that comes through God's Word. Marriage is for wife, is for life. In Christian marriage, a man and a woman are joined to each other as a Christian is joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the relationship in each case is permanent. Marriage is for life, just like our relationship for Christ or with Christ is for life and for eternity. But we know not all marriages have this kind of permanence, don't we? And as a result, we're faced again and again with issues like estrangement, separation, divorce, and remarriage. Those are real-life issues we have to deal with. And we have to deal with it in light of what the Bible has to say. So look at verse 31 and 32 there of chapter 5. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, the history of this certificate that Jesus is referring to comes from the days of Moses, when Moses was asked to deal with divorce, and he devised this particular way of dealing with the divorce. And I'm sure we'll probably come back to that because, you know, later in chapter 19 of this same book, Jesus speaks to this issue again. But this, this discussion, that discussion is for another day. So I'm not going into the whole history of that. But I will back up into history. It's according to how old you are. When I was growing up as a Baptist, if you were a Baptist, it, you know, you could be forgiven for just about anything. 
You could be forgiven for alcohol abuse or drug addiction. You could, be abu- you could be forgiven for lying or cheating or stealing or murder or going to prison. or I mean, you could list just about anything you want to until you got to the word divorce. And if you had been divorced, woe unto you and your family and your household. It often seems like that was the unforgivable sin in Baptist life. I remember those days. Of course, I'm being a little facetious. Nothing is unforgivable. As long as you know Christ, everything's forgivable. As long as you have him in your heart, it's all forgivable. But sometimes, growing up, it's kind of like you're still in church and you've been through a divorce, so you probably need somebody to go before you hollering, unclean, unclean, because that's just kind of how our attitudes were. But now, today, the pendulum seems to have swung the other way to the point that... In the world, and sometimes even in the church, sometimes, it seems that when you get tired of somebody, get a divorce. When the bills don't get paid like I want them, get a divorce. When I get mad because you bought this and I didn't have any part in that, just get a divorce. That seems to be how far we've gone in another direction. Somewhere there's got to be a middle ground, doesn't there? Genesis 2, 24 reminds us about a lifetime commitment, though. For even in the beginning of our book, it says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. They are joined. They are not temporary companions. This is not an agreement of convenience. It's a lifelong covenant. But by the last half of the Old Testament, The practice of divorce had become fairly casual to the point in Malachi chapter 2, God quit hearing the prayers of his people because divorce in Israel had become so widespread and flagrant. He did not hear their prayers. Jesus addresses this here. And here, as well as chapter 19, if you want to look at that later, he says that the permissible Biblical reason for divorce is unfaithfulness. Not I'm tired of you or you don't look pretty enough or what happened to all your hair. I had to say something because some of you are getting really serious on me out there. Yeah, I see the tar and feathers coming. Unfaithfulness. So that pretty much covers adultery and abandonment as biblical grounds for divorce. Divorce is not the option for solving problems or a way out of an uncomfortable relationship. And it is important for us to look for ways to restore that relationship even when it seems to be difficult. But then there comes a place where it's not going to happen. Because unfortunately, that takes willingness on both parts, on both ends. Willingness by both parties to work through the issues to keep marriage alive. And here's a couple of things to remember in all of that. First of all, these are standards for Christians and not for the world. Of course, that I, you know, I believe, and I think you would too, that following Christian standards and principles will 
work for anybody, believer or non-believer. But the fact is, Jesus is speaking about working within Christian families to strengthen families and to keep families together. But unfortunately, the majority of people are not Christians, so it would be a mistake for you and I to assume that everybody has to operate on the same way that we understand truth. Because just as you've probably heard Chad Womack say, and I've heard others say, lost people act lost. So they're not going to make decisions the way you and I do. They're not going to look for biblical principles if they're lost people. So this morning, if you've had challenges and you're trying to figure out if being a Christian is important to you and you've never made that decision, it changes your view of everything once you become a Christian. And we encourage you to consider that this morning. A second thing is conversion to Christ gives us a clean slate. Because there are so many folks who become Christians, they were married, but before they were Christians, they were married and remarried and divorced, or they have issues to wipe through. Here's the great thing about becoming a Christian. It's like wiping the slate clean. Because the old goes away and the new has come. And so when you're married after you become a Christian, it's like being married for the very first time. It's like the old stuff went away. So aren't you glad there is a way that we don't have to carry everything we've ever done forward, but that God has provided a way where we can clean things up and start fresh and new? And you know, this is a very important subject this morning. It's a very, unfortunately, it's a very uncomfortable area for us to discuss because there's so many barbs and thorns attached to it and there's scars and there's hard choices that have to be made. But in Jude verse 24, it says, whether you're a believer, I mean, excuse me, for all of us who are believers and regardless of our past journey, in Jude 24, it says to him, meaning God, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. So when we become fresh and new, we're presented without fault. I cannot imagine in my own mind how I can ever be presented without fault. And I've accepted Christ. And I've accepted that's the truth of this verse. And yet it is almost beyond me that I could ever be seen by the God of the universe as without fault. But that's the marvelous, amazing thing about our God. He can decide to forget. He can decide to put it aside. You and I are brand new as believers. That's the assurance and the grace that comes with belief. You may be thinking, you know, I have some, I have some questions. I, my situation, Bill, you've, you've mentioned some things, but my situation is different. And I don't know what that might be, but, you know, obviously, as many of us as there are in here, we all have different different things that have gone on. But here's some things you can grasp onto. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God will reward us for earnestly 
seeking him. If we seek his face, if we desire, if we desire his answers, he will lead us forward in the way we are to go. And he brings blessings into our life. And particularly this morning in light of the subject, he, bring, he brings blessings into our marriage. So where are you today? Were you able to sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord? Is he the most important thing in your life? Because after the relationship with him, the next most important relationship is your family, your marriage, the things that make you who you are about all that. And where are you today? Are you doing the things that hold your marriage together? Are you making the decisions that you make to try to make things better? Are you following the God-honored example that he has proven again and again and again in his book? Do you have old stuff that you haven't dealt with? Old baggage? Or maybe a trunk full of it? Are you taking your spouse for granted? Are you taking your kids for granted? Men, are you leading in your home as a spiritual leader? Or is your definition of leading at home just being the boss and telling everybody what to do? And we could go on all day long asking those questions. But I have the feeling, and I truly believe, that if we've looked at these scriptures this morning in an honest, open way, God has said something to us. He's reminded us of something. He's offered us something fresh and new because that's the way he works. The power of the Holy Spirit in this room is working. And that's why we offer an opportunity for you to consider it. We're going to sing, take my life and let it be consecrated again. And I'm going to ask you not to sing words that you don't believe. Because first, you have to be willing to receive his forgiveness. But then after that, by all means, sing every word. Make sure that that really is what you believe. Because he will take you at your word. He took me at mine. A long time ago, at a youth rally, I stood on an open campus field, and I told God that I wanted to be his. Now, I had been a Christian for several years, but I'd gotten to a place where the reality of that really started to hit home. I had understood I was a Christian, but then God seemed to be saying there was a next step. And I told him, that I didn't really know what I needed to know, but I wanted to be his, and I wanted to follow him. And that changed the direction of my life forever. And I've never had to look back on that decision. Now, I don't know what you might need to decide this morning, but if you want to nail that down today, you'll never have to look back 
and wonder if you made the right decision. He will reinforce that every day for you as you go forward as a believer in Christ. So this morning, we offer something called an invitation. We invite you to pray, to sing, to kneel, be glad to talk to you if you'd like. Perhaps this morning you need to make the decision to join this family and become a member at Friendship Baptist Church. So we offer a time like that. And what we don't want to do is go away disappointed when hundreds don't come down here to the front. What we want to do is believe that you are going to make a decision today so that when you do leave this room, that it will be different for you. It will be different today, it will be different tomorrow, and it will be better because you've chosen to do what he asked you to do. You've chosen to be obedient. Let's pray. Father, we understand that these are difficult issues to deal with. We understand that you hold the keys to our lives being better. And for that, we surrender ourselves to you. And I'm praying, Father, that if there's someone here this morning that's never received you, that today would be the day that they would ask you to change their lives. I'm praying, Father, for those as well that have faced issues this week and they've decided to try to do it on their own when they know the answers are really giving it to you and then you in turn take care of them. Father, I'm praying for marriages that may be challenged here this morning, relationships that may be at a standstill, that are not growing in a healthy way. I'm praying for fathers who may have misunderstood their roles at home. I'm praying for mothers that have misunderstood their roles at home. I'm praying for challenges that we all encounter. And I'm praying that you'll help us with those right now so that Tomorrow, we'll have a fresh set of tools to go forward. I'm praying, Father, for that person who's been considering being a part of our church family, but for whatever reason has been waiting. I'm praying, Father, that your will be done as we sing and pray in these moments of invitation. Because we do all of this because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.